put a strong sense of responsibility, whether the desire to fulfill one's commitments or guilt over a terrible mistake, sometimes delay or completely prevent one's spirit from passing on to the other side? This is Mark Lyon. Welcome to the Other Realm. Throughout my life, I have collected true accounts left to us by those who have inadvertently crossed the invisible threshold from our world into the realm of the supernatural and returned to tell the tale. These are their stories. It was almost 10 o'clock that Friday morning in August of 1890 when Edwin Russell felt a blinding bolt of pain flood across his brow. Everything went dark as he collapsed onto the pavement near the corner of Sutter and Mason Streets in San Francisco. And within an hour, the 50-year-old real estate agent was dead of a cerebral hemorrhage. A transplanted Englishman who had lived in San Francisco for ten years, Russell had a wonderfully resonant bass singing voice and was greatly appreciated at St. Luke's Episcopal Church, where he had long been a faithful and dependable member of the choir. When the wife of St. Luke's rector heard about Russell's death, she sent her brother, a Mr. Sprague, to the home of Harry E. Reeves, St. Luke's choir master, to inform him of Russell's death and to ask him to begin choosing music for the funeral. When Sprague arrived that afternoon at Reeves' 2121 California Street residence, he was met by the choir master's sister and niece. They welcomed him in, explaining that Reeves was upstairs. The choirmaster had been going over two te diems, trying to decide which piece of music to use the following Sunday when he heard the doorbell ring. Knowing his sister would call him if he was needed, he had decided to lie down and rest for a moment in his bedroom. But upon closing his eyes, he was seized by an inexplicable impulse to rise and go to the bedroom door. When he opened the door, he saw Russell standing there before him, holding one hand to his forehead and gesturing with a rolled-up sheet of music in the other hand. The image was so clear and lifelike that the choirmaster reached out his hand to greet him and was about to speak when the figure turned away, slowly dissolving into the air. Reeves attempted to call out to his friend, but became momentarily paralyzed and fell back against the wall. My God, he finally exclaimed. Upon hearing his words, Sprague and the others rushed upstairs, where they found him sitting on the staircase, frightened and confused. I've just seen Russell, he started to explain. But that's impossible, his niece interrupted. Mr. Sprague just told us that Mr. Russell died this morning. The blood drained from the choir master's face. Slowly he rose to his feet 
and without another word went back upstairs to his room. Only then did he relate to them the details of what he had seen. Perhaps it had merely been a case of clairvoyance. Perhaps Reeves had psychically become aware of Russell's death, and his mind had somehow manufactured an hallucination which might have brought that knowledge into consciousness. But then, perhaps, it was something more. Perhaps the faithful chorister had felt so strongly about his obligation to the choir that even after death he had returned to let the choirmaster know that he would be unable to sing on Sunday. Of course, there are other commitments and responsibilities far more important than one's obligation to a religious or social organization. Consider, for instance, the desire to provide for one's children as best as one can, a desire which, in a case thoroughly investigated and authenticated by the prestigious Society for Psychical Research, suggests a sense of obligation which very well may continue past death. In relating the following case, I can do no better than to quote from a news story in the Herald of Dubuque, Iowa, dated February 11th, 1891, which read, It will be remembered that on February 2nd, Michael Conley, a farmer living near Ionia, Chickasaw County, was found dead in an outhouse at the Jefferson House. He was carried to Coroner Hoffman's morgue, where, after an inquest, his body was prepared for shipment to his late home. The old clothes which he wore were covered with filth from the place where he was found, and they were thrown outside the morgue on the ground. His son came from Ionia and took the corpse home. When he reached there, and one of the daughters was told that her father was dead, she fell into a swoon in which she remained for several hours. When at last she was brought from the swoon, she said, where are father's old clothes? He has just appeared to me dressed in a white shirt, black clothes, and felt slippers, and told me that after leaving home, he sewed a large roll of bills inside his gray shirt with a piece of my red dress, and the money is still there. In short time, she fell into another swoon, and when out of it, demanded that someone go to Dubuque and get the clothes. She was deathly sick, and is so yet. The entire family considered it only an hallucination, but the physician advised them to get the clothes, as it might set her mind at rest. The son telephoned Coroner Hoffman, asking if the clothes were still in his possession. He looked and found them in the backyard, although he had supposed they were thrown in the vault as he had intended. He answered that he still had them, and on being told that the son would come to get them, they were wrapped in a bundle. 
The young man arrived last Monday afternoon and told Coroner Hoffman what his sister had said. Mr. Hoffman admitted that the lady had described the identical burial garb in which her father was clad, even to the slippers, although she never saw him after death, and none of the family had seen more than his face through the coffin lid. Curiosity being fully aroused, they took the gray shirt from the bundle, and within the bosom found a large roll of bills sewed with a piece of red cloth. The young man said his sister had a red dress exactly like it. The stitches were large and irregular and looked to be those of a man. The son wrapped up the garments and took them home with him yesterday morning, filled with wonder at the supernatural revelation made to his sister, who is presently lingering between life and death. If, as we have already seen, a strong sense of responsibility and the desire to fulfill one's commitments can transcend death, what may we surmise could result from the crushing sense of guilt which might arise from accidentally causing the death of another? Long before the earthquake and fire of 1906, a startling drama unfolded in a San Francisco drugstore on Market Street, a tragedy which a druggist named Sweeney would never forget. I think I've poisoned someone, his assistant Edward Marsden had stammered. The young man's face frozen into a mask of terror, his complexion as pale as death. Good God, man, are you certain? The druggist responded. As certain as I can be. About an hour ago, a young gentleman came in with a prescription from Dr. Nelligan calling for perigoric. I made up the prescription and sent him off on his way. Only now did I notice the open bottle of salts of lemon out on the laboratory table. I don't know how it could have happened. I must have reached for the wrong bottle and given him salts of lemon rather than perigoric. Ring up Dr. Nelligan at once, Sweeney ordered. Get the man's address and pray you can find him in time. Marsden immediately proceeded as instructed. But upon reaching the man's home, he learned from the landlady that the patient had just minutes before left without indicating as to where he might be going. When he returns, Marston gasped, tell him to not, on any account, take that prescription. Emotionally drained, and knowing that his warning would almost certainly not be delivered in time, Edward Marsden returned to the pharmacy, informed his employer of his failure to intervene in time, and summoning what little courage remained in him, slowly made his way up the staircase to his room. Sweeney immediately contacted the police, requesting a citywide search for the young patient. 
Not long thereafter, Sweeney, his wife, and their servant girl all heard Marsden come downstairs and go out the door. There was no mistaking Marsden's heavy manner of walking, his unique lumping gait. A few minutes later, Sweeney heard a blood-curdling scream. The maid had gone upstairs to make up Marsden's bed, and to her horror found Marsden, or rather Marsden's corpse, sitting in a chair, his cold, lifeless eyes staring blankly into space. From that moment on, Marsden's troubled spirit roamed both the pharmacy and the rooms of the residence above. His heavy footsteps could often be heard day and night, both climbing and descending the staircase to his room. While mixing prescriptions, Sweeney often felt Marsden peering over his shoulder anxiously watching his every move, as if attempting to prevent any possible mistake. One day, Mrs. Sweeney thought she saw her husband standing in the parlor. She placed her hand upon his shoulder. The figure she had taken for her husband turned round before her. It was Marsden, his pallid face contorted with despair. The poor woman screamed, and Marsden mournfully walked away, passing completely through the maid, whom, having heard her mistress's scream, had just then rushed into the room. Did you see him? Mrs. Sweeney excitedly inquired. No, the maid replied. Only a dark shadow which seemed to pass before me. But at that very moment, I felt a horrible pang of anguish. A week later, both women encountered Marston on the stairs, passing them so closely that they felt his clothing brushing up against theirs. He appeared so substantial and real that they followed him down into the laboratory. But upon entering the room, they found it to be entirely empty. Such phenomena became almost everyday occurrences until one morning, a young man entered the pharmacy asking for Mr. Sweeney. I am told that you have been looking for me, the young man began. I would have come sooner, but I have been out of town for some time, and it wasn't until now that I was contacted by the police. I was the man for whom your assistant filled that prescription. I don't know what he thought might be wrong with it, but I drank it as soon as I had arrived home, and it did me a world of good. I have heard that the poor man's spirit has been seen several times since. Of course, you surely do not believe in such things. No, I do not believe in such things, Sweeney replied gravely. I know them to be true. Well, if his spirit does linger here, I hope that he now sees that I was unharmed and that he might now rest in peace. The young man turned and was about to leave when suddenly he froze and gasped, Holy Mother of God! There, standing just outside the shop, his face pressed up against the window, was Edward Marsden. 
his look of anguish slowly changing first to bewilderment and then to joy and amazement sweeney rushed forward intending to address him but just as quickly as it had appeared the spirit vanished never to be seen again This is Mark Lyon, inviting you to join me on the first day of every month as we explore more true tales from the Other Realm. The Other Realm is a production of Wind Whistle Theatre. Our music was composed by Dan Heflin. Support for The Other Realm has been provided by HauntedIsles.com, offering private and small group tours of haunted Britain and Ireland, and by Heftone Studios, producers of Phantoms of the Holbrook, a docudrama relating true events occurring at what well may be the most haunted hotel in the entire world, and Natalie a modern retelling of the German legend of the Lorelei, and by Wind Whistle Press, publishers of Jesse Adelaide Middleton's classic trilogy of true tales of the supernatural, The White Ghost Book, The Grey Ghost Book, and its sequel, Another Grey Ghost Book, and Lep Castle, The House of Horrors, by Mildred Darby, and San Francisco Ghosts by Mark Lyon.